Welcome to The Deciders. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications. We're the leading woman-owned and woman-led advertising and communications firm in Southern California. We specialize in changing behaviors to grow brands, but also to have a positive impact on society. Our best-known campaign is the Talk, Read, Sing campaign for First Five California, reminding parents of how important it is to talk and sing and read to babies as soon as they're born and all the way through their many years, but certainly from zero to five, because 90% of the brain is developed by the time they are five. On the show, The Deciders, we feature leaders in their field, change agents, authors who bring us insights, and we ask people to share their stories, reveal the decisions that they've made, but also share with us insights that can guide our businesses. Today, we're going to be talking about news and radio. And many people, when they think of news on the radio, they turn to NPR, National Public Radio, and many think of it as the mainstay of journalism across the country. But in the beginning, 1971, Author Lisa Napoli describes NPR as a little bit of a chaotic mess. And our guest today is Lisa Napoli. She's a journalist who's worked at Marketplace on NPR and has written four books. Her newest is all about NPR, called Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. Lisa Welcome to The Deciders. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you here and kind of give us the insider perspective. We'll talk about what's in the book. Uh, NPR celebrating 50 years on the air this year, but you outline the beginning years. Let's talk about what was like in the early years. Now we're talking about the early 70s. Yeah, I love origin stories because, you know, you get to peer behind the curtain of these established entities and find out how chaotic it was at the beginning. And my last book was about CNN and the creation of uh, the first all news cable channel. This book is about, as you say, the, the beginning of not just national public radio, but the birth of public radio generally. Most people mistakenly call NPR the network on which they listen to uh, public radio shows. Uh, All around the country, there's a matrix of local affiliates, just like we're on ABC, um, and they carry NPR shows. And so in 1971, there are a bunch of people in DC, a small group of people who were charged with creating public radio. It was the same time, around the same time, that public broadcasting television started too. And they had to figure out what it was and with very little money and with very little trained staff. Because while today there are people who go to master's programs to learn audio production, that was absolutely not the case in the late 60s and early 70s. So it was a dilapidated you know, office space with very little furniture in it and a bunch of newbies to radio and people who'd come over from commercial radio who basically had to make up what it was that people were going to listen to. Well, and in the 70s, I think probably it was mostly men on the radio. It was only men on the radio. If you heard a woman on the radio, it was either doing a commercial for some sort of home device, or it was a woman who was talking about women's issues, uh, you know, society kinds of things, uh, fashion sorts of things, advice, uh, the softer kinds of segments. There were not women news news 
reporters, you know, yeah. women journalists telling their story on the air? Oh, my gosh. Uh, no, women were not allowed because they were believed not to be authoritative enough to talk about weighty subjects. And so, yes, NPR at the very beginning was a man and 20-something people who were support staff, some of whom were women. And that was not terribly unusual. But what was unusual was that they started volunteering to do on-air segments because there weren't enough reporters. And so it was very unusual to hear women deliver weighty news. Susan Stanberg and uh, Linda Wertheimer were, were hired back then in 1971. Uh, let's talk about Susan first, if we could. She was the first woman to anchor the newscast on the program, All Things Considered, which is the great program that really talks about the news, if you will. Was that job controversial in 1972? So All Things Considered was the first show that National Public Radio created, and it was the afternoon show. It was on from 5 to 6.30, and Susan Stamberg had come in as a production assistant, a part-time production assistant. She was a new mom in her early 30s. She'd come from an educational radio station. And so she had some background in non-commercial media. And she was basically occasionally contributing taped reports and was asked to substitute host in this ragtag group of people. It, you know, There was no discrimination against her gender because they just couldn't afford to discriminate. And she was so good when she sat in as a substitute guest host that, that the producer said, this is exactly the sound we've been trying to get to achieve here. She's got it. And somebody said, but she's a woman. You can't make her the host. And he said, why not? Why? That's a ridiculous thing. So he made her the co-host in 1972. And she was so good that all around the country, this matrix of public radio stations, listeners, there weren't very many listeners to start. They just loved her sound and they started writing in and sending her fan mail, sending her presents, sending her chicken soup when she sounded sick. And <laughs> she, was, she became the first woman to co-host a nightly network newscast. Yeah, amazing. You know what I like about Susan, having listened to her for many years, she has a point of view. She brings a human side and a perspective, not, not a political perspective, right. but right. a point of view. What people fell in love with was that she was a human, like you say. She wasn't an announcer. And she, you know, she was she wasn't actually even really trained as a journalist. And again, that was at a time when people didn't go to journalism school and get master's degrees routinely. You know, there have been decades and decades of people who worked in, in all sorts of publishing and mm -hmm. uh, sorry, uh, newspapers and radio and television who didn't have master's or even bachelor's degrees in, in journalism. Right. Yeah, but she she just brought this humanity and this in, in, ineffable uh, quality of a salon hostess, a curiosity. Um, salon hostess sounds a little frivolous, but she was just as warm and friendly as somebody who'd meet you at her front door if you were coming over for a party and ask you questions about who you were and where you came from and why do you do that and where does that come from? And that was something that no one had heard on the radio before, um, or certainly, you know, in broadcast media, official broadcast media, mm -hmm. and that's, that defined the whole sound of NPR. Uh, it's, of course, a very different place today. It's a huge multi-million dollar ecosystem, but she set it off on that tone. I like that. You know, it was her, uh, 
her personality in many ways that started it. And, and obviously, good luck. She was at the right place, but she also prepared. What about Linda Wertheimer? She also started that early on. And uh, I think she started as a consumer reporter. Is that right? Well, no, she actually started also behind the scenes uh, as a director. Um, she, she was just hired, basically, because Bill Seemering, the NPR's first program director, uh, she walked in the door. She had come to D.C. because she got married to a man who lived there, but she'd been working in New York in commercial radio at CBS News Radio, and she... You know, she really wanted to be on the air, but at CBS News Radio, they said, you're not going to get on the air here. Sorry, it's just not going to happen. So she found herself in D.C., found herself getting crewed up by this new entity, um, was a very organized person, had done some work at the BBC after college because of an internship there. And so she was good. You know, she had a sense of organization. So she became the person who was the traffic cop of that uh. first Right. considered. And like Susan, she just, like everybody there, they all had their hands in various things and because um, they needed everybody to do every job that they could. And, and wanting to be on the air, she sort of appointed herself consumer affairs reporter. Uh, and from there, she graduated or moved over to uh, covering Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was able, she was able to just use this place that was a complete startup to advance herself, which is terrific. And it was very unusual. Smart and savvy and a little bit of boldness, which we know is very important these days and important for women, right? Not yeah, step yeah. away from the risk and step right into an opportunity. Yeah. What about uh, Nina Totenberg? How did she get started? Nina's interesting too. She always wanted to be a reporter. And she had no interest in radio. Again, wasn't like a lot of people would have interest in radio then because it was a marginalized medium at that point. Television had eclipsed it. And she had begun as a print reporter, but she bucked up the same against the same problems that Linda had in radio, which was people didn't want women to cover serious, hard news. And sure enough, she made her way at smaller papers, worked her way up to bigger papers, no papers that you probably ever heard of because most of them are out of business now, but she got experience, moved herself to DC by herself because she knew she needed to get onto a bigger stage. And basically the last place she'd worked for had gone out of business and she was looking for work and somebody around town had seen her and knew that she was a dogged reporter. And so they brought her in to uh, a man named Bob Zelnick, who some people may remember was an ABC correspondent for a long time. He was working at NPR at the time, and he brought her in to be a, a sort of utility player reporter. And sure enough, that's what she did. She ran around DC covering everything, uh, filing all kinds of reports, but she loved the Supreme Court. She didn't find it boring while some people found it tedious. And, you know, she's made a name for herself doing that. I love that. I mean, I, all these women now, uh, the only founding mother that has passed away is Cokie, Cokie Roberts. Uh, I think everybody loved listening to Cokie, and she eventually made her way even to television reporting because of her reputation. Uh, tell us about her. Well, yeah, she is a fascinating person, uh, as they all are, and probably the most famous because she did jump over to TV and later became a best-selling writer of books. And she, Koki, was just a singular 
pedigree. She came from a family that had been on Capitol Hill for, for decades. Her father and then later her mother served in Congress. And so she'd grown up on Capitol Hill and yet she was Southern. So she'd also grown up part-time in New Orleans. So she had this gentility twinned with this know-how. And what I love about her story is you would never know, and I certainly didn't until I started writing this book, that the great late Cokie Roberts had ever not aspired to do what she did. But in fact, when she got out of college in the 60s, her own, her prevailing ambition was to marry her college boyfriend and start a family. Oh, my. Many women of that generation. Yes, in that era. They They call it the MRS degree, right? She wanted the MRS, and she saw all of her girlfriends and and many of her uh, boyfriends, sweet mates at Harvard getting married, and she wanted to get married too. And she did, and uh, they they lived their lives together happily. But uh, and he she followed him around in his career. But when they came back to Washington D.C., she wanted to work and couldn't get a job for the same reason that the women earlier mentioned couldn't. Uh, we have our women. We don't need our woman. We don't need our women. <laughs> we already have enough. We already have enough. And uh, she prevailed, or actually her husband prevailed, because he went to work and found out that there was this opening at, at NPR and nobody knew what NPR was, but they needed. she needed a job. So sure enough, she wound up getting a gig there and the rest is history, as I document in the book. You know, what, what I like about her is you can understand. I, I'll never forget, you know, the, she would talk about what Congress was doing. And she also built in a little bit of her knowledge from her parents being politicians, right? This is the way it works. And you trusted her to be explaining it. And it was in layman's language. Exactly. Yeah, she had this in, incredible gift, you know, married with this incredible know-how of as as Nina does uh, from a different vantage point with the Supreme Court, this capacity to explain um, inside the Beltway shenanigans the way only somebody like her could. And there really wasn't anybody like her. Now, Linda had studied all of that and was great at it, too. But Cokie brought to it a different sensibility, as you say. And that's what her shine and people came up to her on the streets and thanked her because they'd never heard women talking about weighty subjects. Maybe they'd heard somebody at home, but certainly a woman in a public forum would never discuss these kinds of things ever. It was so unusual. So it was inspiring. You know, Gina Davis has said this, you can't be it if you can't see it. So I know for a fact this inspired, they inspired, as you have, a lot of young girls to take up journalism and to believe they could be on radio or on television. It's all our jobs as people uh, to set examples for other people, especially younger other people. And as a woman, I feel privileged to have this conversation with you in a public forum, and hopefully someone will hear it and be inspired to follow something, who knows what, and in, you know, something good, hopefully. Yes, yes. Good for others. And uh, what I love about this story and loved about researching it and love about history generally is that all four of these women were women whose names I knew and whose work I knew, but I knew nothing about their backgrounds and knowing the dimension of their backgrounds, it's true of any of us. Mm -hmm. If I know more about how you got to be who you are, 
I have a whole different sense of respect and admiration and understanding of you. Very than much. I would if I just, you know, hear you or see your work. And Aye. that's what Linda Wertheimer, as a young woman growing up in Carlsbad, New Mexico, when she saw on television Pauline Frederick, one of the first news reporters on television, when she saw Pauline Frederick standing outside the United Nations talking about news from the United Nations, that flipped a switch for Linda Wertheimer, the daughter of a grocer from New Mexico, to say, wow, I want to do that. And she did. And you know what? If she hadn't done that, that wouldn't make her life less successful. But the fact that she was inspired by this vision on the screen really puts a fine point on what Gina Davis talks about all the time, which is what you see on that screen influences your brain and the way you feel like you can live in the world. Exactly. So important. Well, and I and I like the story about working hard as an intern at BBC and then getting an opportunity. I, I want young people out there to know that it can be one project you work on that becomes the gem that opens the door for the next thing. And you've got to give it your all. You've got to be bold and confident, be proud of it, talk about it so other people hear about it. And you never know who, which ears it will fall on, as you said, and what opportunity might come as a result. Yes. I mean, for years, I wanted to segue out of journalism into writing books. And I said that to a former colleague of mine from MSNBC who said, you know what? I, I have a literary agent who I'd like for you to meet. And he connected me to this woman who connected me to this man who's been my longtime literary agent. And basically, you know, you always take the meeting, always put it out there what you want to do. And yes. You never know what's going to connect, but you, no one will know if you don't say it, right? That's you right. That's right. Good advice. So. Let me ask you, did the women like each other, four women? What's so great about this story is that they really respected each other, worked together, and helped one another until the very end. I mean, they, they developed an affection for one another that is uncommon. I mean, we've all worked with people whom we love. Sometimes you marry someone you live, you work with. Sometimes you become best friends with someone you work with. But in this case, the fact that they all four, uh, even though they came into the system at about, you know, several, within, you know, 10 years of each other and, and each had met, met with incredible success, uh, they all helped and supported each other through deaths of parents and husbands and you know challenges with their families and challenges with their jobs they all and their own personal illnesses they all supported one another and that sadly seems surprising uh, to a lot of people but they you know when you say that to them they're shocked that you would be shocked by it because for I them so ineffably part of their connection to each other and their connection to NPR. So they strengthen not only their relationships with one another, but their relationships with their employer and with people at work. They were constantly, you know, Susan Stanberg talks about these lists that they kept because they love to fix people up at work. (laughs) (laughs) Or somebody lost a job somewhere in Washington, they love to figure out, you know, they would, you know, deploy and try to get somebody a job somewhere. Wow. So they wow. were on every level, personal and professional, they were ticking. And, you know, by the way, I bet you do that, too. I know I do that. Well, I do. I do. Right? So, Absolutely. so I think any any good, smart person recognizes, you know, if that person needs something and that person has it, 
it's incumbent on me to connect them. Exactly. These yep. women, that that was just naturally in their DNA. They didn't have like to a them. like a second job that we have being exactly. a connector. Exactly. I, I even I even keep track of the amount of time I do it every week because it's it's a big part of it. it. You know, you we've earned it, right? We worked hard. What I like about it too is it's kind of the opposite. You know, Madeline Albright said there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. <laughs> yes. yeah. I'd like to know the positive side of that, right? There's a special place in heaven for women, and it sounds like these four women were helping each other and advancing other young women in the field of journalism. Well, they they knew they had a responsibility as four of the first women to step up and and be present, visible, audible in their work. And they also felt that they wanted to help the people behind them because they understood how hard it had been for them. And of course, they recognized that it was easier now, of course, as things opened. It was both easier and harder because as mm-hmm. the ecosystem expanded. Yes, there were more jobs. As women were taken more seriously, yes, there was more opportunity, but it also made it harder too because there were more people coming into the system and more competition happening. But they just they just felt like this honor for this place that had given them this opportunity. You know, Koki Roberts got this job with ABC, but and could have left NPR, which was paying her a fraction, what she was making at ABC on television with David Brinkley, but she always stayed. Um, she just felt that much allegiance to the place. And that's unusual too. Of course, many of us don't enjoy allegiance from our employer for so long. Right, right, right. So they're, they're a rare breed on many different levels, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from I love I love these stories. You know, one of the things I always try to find are men who have been champions. And we're seeing more and more, thank goodness, as women are taking the lead in so many uh, areas. Uh, But tell me about NPR. Was there a man you say that really made a difference? I know there is from looking at your book. But tell us about Frank Mankiewicz, correct? Yeah, Frank Mankiewicz. First, there was Bill Seymouring, the program director, who who didn't balk at hiring women. Um, And he was gone pretty early on. And then there was Jack Mitchell, who was the wise young producer who recognized Susan Stamberg was good and went to the mat to make sure she got that job as the co-anchor. And then there was Frank Mankiewicz, who to Angelinos um, or movie buffs uh, may be familiar or, or people who watch TV because his sons are both in in the business too. uh, He was the son of Herman Mankiewicz of Citizen Kane fame and from radio fame. Um, His father had helped create radio drama and he understood that in these four women, he had this incredible, Gem, these gems. And he came into the system as the third president of NPR in the late 70s when NPR was still evolving. And he recognized that, that you know, they were a, a secret weapon or not so secret weapon. And so he wanted to promote them uh, both literally in, in ads to the public, but also all around town. And so I love the story of Frank because he, yeah, it takes it takes all of us. Uh, and, and in that case, it took him he walked into this place and there were these women and he did not try to repress them or hold them back in any way. In fact, he went out of his way to make sure they continued to be front and center. So, you know, I think he saw that they were the differentiator. They were a powerful differentiator. I mean, I think NPR and the structure of the news they do is is different. It's longer form. It's reflective. And women telling those stories, I think there's even something about the women's voices, that there's a 
an affinity and you feel close. We know people identify with the personalities on radio. It's a really potent part of it. I think that was what was happening with NPR. Would you agree? Absolutely. They wanted when they created uh, public broadcasting not to sound like other broadcasting, which at that time was a very defined sound and a defined look. If you were watching TV, it was the same kinds of people, not to diss Walter Cronkite, one of the greatest broadcasters of all time, but they were all out of the same mold. And here was this new format in this old medium that was left for dead. And these women gave it depth, as you say, and humanity. And because they had power, they were able to say, hey, we should do this story or, hey, this person needs to be on the air. And just like you and I would have a whole different sensibility toward a story based on where we are from and who we are, they had a different sensibility than the the people who were producing the news in other places. And that allowed the dimension to really seep through at NPR. You know what I I like about it that you're alluding to is that they wanted you to understand it. Koki wanted you to understand the Supreme Court. Linda wanted you to understand Congress and the implication. It wasn't like, I'm just going to read this to you and tell you what it's about in a one-way street. It was like you were in a dialogue with them. Would you agree? I definitely agree. And that's, you know, the best broadcasters know what the heck they're talking about. It's like, I always say, I don't, I'm not a big sports fan, but if I hear a person who really understands sports talking about it, it's very exciting. And they bring you in, they engage you. As long as they're not talking at you, you feel engaged and you want to know more and you're learning, but not in a kind of wonky way. It's, it's, it's a wonderful way. Boy, Lisa, this has been wonderful. This has been Lisa Napoli, the author of The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. It's called Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. She also wrote a really wonderful book about CNN and how it got started, a whole nother story. It's very interesting. And uh, anything on the docket we should know about you're going to be writing about, Lisa? I'm working on a book right now about April 9th, 1939. So if anybody's listening and hears that and knows what the heck I'm talking about, write me an email. It's lisa at lisanapoli.com. Because if you know, I'm so impressed. I'm sure you're <laughs> it right now. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up. Thank you, Lisa. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Thank you all for spending time with us on The Deciders with insights and certainly inspiring stories around uh, the founding mothers of NPR. You can hear our podcast anytime on our website at FraserCommunications.com. You know, we're a full service advertising and communications firm. Get in touch with us at that website. We'll be back next week here on The Deciders with Renee Frazier. Have a great week ahead and stay safe.